0: Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Cara tonight, and our topic is the ubiquity of the Bible's inner meaning. Now I'll need to explain the word ubiquity last time we talked about the universality of the Bible's inner meaning. Ubiquity comes from a Latin root, ubique, meaning everywhere. It's the everywhereness. The inner meaning is everywhere within Scripture. That's what I'll be arguing tonight. So I'd like to invite you to join me for that journey, and let's open with a prayer, shall we, friends? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. You are the Word made flesh. We pray for your presence among us tonight, Lord. Help us understand your Word, the messages that you have for us in it. Amen. Amen. Very good to see everybody. Sending love to those of you out li- out there in internet world and on the phone, on the audio, and so on. Great to be with you. Uh, the everywhereness, the ubiquity of the Bible's inner meaning—it's an interesting idea. I think that a lot of people uh, unfamiliar with Swedenborg's works, when they but familiar with the Bible. Uh, would say that there's a lot of sort of allegorical or metaphorical language. You know, there's just a lot in scripture that describes people as trees or sheep or or things like this. You know, the, the Lord is described as a lamb or a rock or a grapevine, you know, and that certainly there is a sort of poetical language here and there. Uh, What is unusual to me about what Swedenborg says is that in in all of Scripture, there's a meaning. Whether you're reading just what sounds like a straight up story of a battle or you're reading some prophecy, a genealogy with just a whole list of names, uh, you know, something in the in the Gospels, uh, an epistle from Paul or whatever. All these things have an inner meaning in them. So what I wanted to do first was just look at different types of things and talk a little bit about the inner meaning. So let's go back to Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible, all the way to the left there. And I want to go to chapter 20, which begins with the Ten Commandments. We're not going to look at those, uh, but I just wanted to read a couple of verses shortly after that. Uh, Let's start at verse Twenty-three. So this is right after, if you look at the text there, in, at the beginning of chapter 20, you have the Ten Commandments are given for the first time here in the text. And then the people see thunder and lightning and so on. And Moses comes to the people and the people stood afar off. And Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And then let's read from verse 22 there.
1: Then the Lord God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver or gods of gold, you shall not make for yourselves. An altar of earth you shall make for me, Hmm. and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, for if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it.
0: Okay, let's, let's stop there. Okay, so uh, scripture, I find, is just, there's so much concentrated information in it. It's one of those things that at first, when you look at it, it's sort of deceptively straightforward or even kind of sometimes... It seems, you know, not very well written or something. But the more you look at the details, it's just full of details. So the Lord says, you've seen that I talk with you from heaven, and you will not make gods of silver nor gods of gold. Okay, that's pretty basic. But it's interesting. That, um, those are not the only two substances that you could make idols out of. But Swedenborg would say that the, the specific reason that gold and silver are mentioned is that gold has to do with love and silver has to do with truth. Or in their opposite meaning, that gold would have to do with an evil love and uh, silver would have to do with false, like bad teaching, you know, bad understanding, bad teaching. So don't make false gods for me. And then what does he say in verse 24 at the beginning there?
1: An altar of earth you shall make for me. Oh,
0: so he says, make me an altar of earth. Interesting. And what does he say at the beginning of verse 25?
1: And if you make me an altar of stone. Oh,
0: so he said, make me an altar of earth. If you make me an altar of stone, here's what you shouldn't do. So he says, just make me an altar of earth. And that's where you'll sacrifice everything. And in all the places where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, don't build it. What did it say? Do not build it of
1: hewn stone. Don't
0: build it of hewn stone. Hewn. Well done, dear Rita. <laughs> And Why not?
1: For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it.
0: You have profaned it. Now, one of the best friends of this Bible study is a stonemason. I'm sure he doesn't think he spends all day profaning stones by using a tool on it. What do you mean you profaned it? You profaned it? Oh, that's, that's pretty awful. Really? Just by picking up a chisel or something? You really destroyed it? You should never, ever do such a terrible thing as carve a stone. Oh, no. I mean, this building here has all sorts of carved stone in it. What what is it talking about? If you make me an altar of stone, don't build it of hewn stone, for if you lift up your tool against it, you've profaned it. Or in the old King James grand language, you have polluted it. Yeah, wow. Well, Swedenborg explains what this means. That the um, First of all, the altar of earth is something that has to do with the heart has to do with love. And that's really the type of altar that he would prefer. So he doesn't say, if you make me an altar of earth. He says, just make me an altar of earth. That's what you should do. And those animals that it mentions are all about good kinds of love that we have, you know, various different kinds of of love for the neighbor and that sort of thing. And then it says, if, so this is just a fallback plan, is to worship God through truth rather than love. And if you're going to do that, don't use your lower self, your tool, and hack stuff to make it look like truth. Eh, does that look approximately like the truth? Chink, 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 chink. You know, don't do that, because that's what people have a tendency to do. If you're not being run by love, uh, then at the very least, use a stone that I made and don't mess with it. <laughs> You know, it says the Lord. So, so just just use truth the way I gave it to you. Don't go hacking it and making it look the way that you you want it to look. That is understandably. Profane, is it not, friends? Like that is polluting, you know, to use a chisel on a stone is not a horrendous crime, you know. But using our lower self to hammer out what we think religion ought to look like. That, that's trouble. So that inner meaning helps me understand. We're right after the Ten Commandments, and we're already getting these, these commandments that are difficult to understand in a purely literal way. So one way of taking it would just be to say, oh, okay, for some reason God's sort of a nut about whether you use chisels or not, you know, and that's the way you have to take it. So I'll just obey the rules. But if you look at it more deeply, There's an inner meaning within there, the fact that it has a balance of the earth and the stone, the use of the if and all that, and the warning about it. And yet, uh, you know, most people, like, what would they understand when they read that? You you wouldn't understand it uh, without an inner meaning. So I wanted to pick an example, just any old example out of the hat, out of the law uh, to suggest. This is what we do in Bible study every night, but still, I thought it'd be fun. Let's look at something from the law. So... Swedenborg says there's an inner meaning in there, even though it just sounds like the law and rules and so on. That's written with an inner meaning. It doesn't like it, it doesn't say that it's bad to use this or, or that type of stone for an altar. But it's mainly the inner meaning that it's talking about there. Uh, let's go to first Samuel. So turn to the right. Go through Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, get to first Samuel And I want to go to chapter 17. This is the famous story of David and Goliath. Such a wonderful story. We did a Bible study on this a few years ago. And um, David's just a young person. He hasn't fought. He's never worn armor before. But he's been out protecting the animals. And he's had some run-ins with wild animals while he was doing that. And uh, so look at... um, Let's start at verse 33. "Saul was the king, and David's just this young lad who's been out taking care of the flocks." Uh, 17:33. That's right.
1: And Saul said to David, <clears throat> excuse me, "You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he, a man of war from his youth."
0: Yes, and you may remember that uh, Goliath, the way it's told in this story, is nine foot six inches tall. Uh, so he was a rather daunting <coughs> enemy. He'd been out there challenging the, uh, the, all the Israelite, anybody, to come forward and fight him one-on-one, and nobody would, would touch him. So David comes along, and Saul tells him, you can't do this. And so what does David reply?
1: But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. Mm. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it.
0: Caught it by its beard. Interesting, you know. I don't know if that's always the canonical way to kill a bear or, you know, a lion or whatever. Grab it by the beard and clock it. Okay, go on.
1: Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God.
0: And then he kind of repeats himself in verse 37.
1: <laughs> Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, mm. he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine.
0: That's great poetry, isn't it? The paw the paw of the lion the paw of the bear he'll deliver me from the hand of this Philistine sort of comparing the Philistine to the lion and the bear and Saul
1: said to David go and the Lord be with you
0: <laughs> yes <laughs> I don't think he felt overwhelming confidence and uh, we know how the story turned out uh, David throws one stone in verse 49 it sinks into the Philistines forehead And he falls on his face to the earth. And read verses 50 and 51.
1: So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Hmm. Therefore, David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword His sword, drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, They fled.
0: Yes. So this is what uh, uh, Michael Palin uh, had a show called Ripping Yarns, which I think is such a wonderful pun. This is a ripping yarn right here. Uh, You know, a tremendous action story. uh, The big bad uh, Goliath and the young uh, confident David. and, um, And he doesn't even have a sword. So what he does is he uh, uses his sling and the stone, kills him, and then he goes out when uh, the other has fallen down, and he uses Goliath's sword to cut off his head, and all the Philistines run away. Now, once again, isn't it interesting, one of the, I I want to do a Bible study sometime, and I may never get around to it, about the, The 10 early warning signs that there's an intermeeting. But one of the early warning signs that there's an intermeeting is that you have two of something. Like, you could just have a lion, that'd be fine. Or a bear. But you got a lion and a bear. You know, there's there's two things. The sling and the stone. Uh, So often there's two things that it's talking about. And um, so let's talk about the lion and the bear a little bit. And that beard. Grabbed him by the beard. Interesting. And delivered him out of the paw, specifically the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. He'll deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. So um, what this is about in the inner meaning, and you remember that the lion and the bear and they had a lamb. It sounds like it's almost one story, doesn't it? There came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. So it almost sounds like one story that a lion and a bear came out together and they both somehow picked up one lamb and one mouth or something, you know, there are little clues like this that you're dealing with a, with an inner meaning. Uh, if, if it doesn't totally make literal sense the way that it is. And so he went out out after him, struck him and delivered the lamb from his mouth and he caught him by his beard and killed him. Uh, Swedenborg says the meaning of this. Now, something that fascinates me, I I will digress briefly on this, that uh, fascinatingly, Swedenborg explains a lot more about some parts of Scripture than others. But he's emphatic that there's an inner meaning throughout. Fascinatingly, one of the favorite stories of all time, most of this story, Swedenborg never has anything to say about it. He he never, never says a thing about it. But he does mention a little bit about the lion and the bear, that the lion, uh, a lion, so many things in scripture have a positive meaning and a negative meaning. So the lion has a positive meaning, which is the power of spiritual truth, and the bear is the power of sort of earthly truth. Uh, There are two different levels of truth, and that's why they're together, and they almost seem to come together and take the lamb. Lamb meaning innocence and so on, the flock having to do with the church, David having to do with the Lord. And uh, that the Lord delivered him from the paw of the lion. When they're the other way up, when they have a negative meaning, then the lion means uh, the power of a spiritual falsity that wants to destroy the truth and then the power of some earthly falsity that wants to destroy the truth. That's what the lion and the bear are. And so this is nothing short of a picture of what Jesus did when he was in the world and what he does for all of us when he takes us away from evil bit by bit is that he's able to take these are, you know, in the story, it might be sort of arbitrary that it was a lion and a bear. I mean, it could have been whatever, you know, what about a wolf or something, but, but that's what it was. But that's because these are the two things that are, are particularly deadly for the church, for the followers of the Lord. And when the Lord came into the world, he rescued innocent people from these inwardly evil ideas and these outwardly evil ideas meant by the lion and by the bear. The beard in particular was that the Lord was able to take them on the outside. The beard has to, beard has to do with hair, has to do with what is external or outermost, and, and that's how the Lord caught them. That's why it also talks about the paw and the paw. It's not about what was deep and inward, but it, it came down to this outward battle, if that makes sense. It was the power of this falsity that the Lord wanted to oppose. And so he took it by this outermost thing, by the beard, and he was able to destroy these things and set the lamb Free. So, in a few verses, another feature of the inner meaning is that a few verses depict the whole story. You know, that's that's what we were talking about last week with the universality. The whole story of Jesus coming into the world is in this brief scope of what happens. How about this Philistine? The Philistines, interestingly, Swedenborg says, mean people who know the truth but are not living by it. People who know the truth, but they're not living by it, and so so, Goliath is this huge sort of he's got he's armed with all this information, he he knows scripture and all that, but he's living an evil life. That's the idea, and and uh, being killed with his own sword. It wasn't David's sword. The, the Lord didn't come in to harm anything, uh, but it, the its own falsity. You know what I mean. Like it carried its own punishment within it. That's why uh, the Goliath loses his head by his own sword. Uh, His own sword cut off his own head. I don't know if I'm making any sense. But that's a little glimpse, hopefully, at the... The forehead also means what you love and everything. That's where the stone went. So the stone was this divine truth, you know, right into the heart of what that thing loved. It was vulnerable in that. And the Lord was able to deal with this. And so that's what the David and Goliath story means and why that has such a stirring effect in our hearts when we read that. Let's pick another really horrendous story, shall we? Let's go into the Psalms in the middle of your Bible. Probably one of the most disturbing scriptures out there. Psalm 137, verses 8 and 9.
1: Oh, daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed, happy the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock.
0: Yes, who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Almost sounds like a kind of church-sanctioned infanticide or something. You know, it, it sounds horrific. It doesn't spell out, it doesn't say children. But, like, it's pretty clear that that's what it means. And happy will that person be who, who does this. The horrendous passion. This is the type of stuff that makes people hate the Bible, you know, that it would say anything like that. And the Bible's full of violence and animals that get slaughtered and all kinds of things in the literal meaning. <clears throat> so, what could the inner meaning of something like that possibly be? Babylon, as I said a few weeks ago, is that desire, as Swedenborg explains it, it's the desire to use the tools of religion in order to dominate over people and control them. And so uh, this is, again, about the Lord freeing people from that yoke. And the little ones that will be dashed against the rock, the little ones are these, like, hard to put this into words, but what happens uh, when the church is relatively weak is that you get these false ideas come up and they get full grown and they have a thousand kids and they, you know, like it just but what you want to do is nip it in the bud. That's what this is talking about. If you get so sharp with the truth that you can nip it in the bud the, and the rock means the truth against what is false. And so as soon as this false idea comes up, you dash it, the, the head again being mean the purpose of it. It's the whole point of it that that's coming from someplace evil And so as the church gets wiser, it will have the blessed ability to recognize something uh, that is false and that's coming from something evil and deal with it quickly. Just say, no, that's that's from hell and cast it down. You know, it's not talking about physical violence, as Swedenborg says, when he's explaining this passage to literally do that would be, quote unquote, an enormous crime, you know. And so uh, we need to understand that there are things in the literal sense of Scripture that some some of them are horrendous. It's amazing to me that that people are so attached to this idea of reading literally because there's some pretty awful stuff in there. But when you look at what it means inwardly, again, it's about the Lord releasing people, about sending what is false down to hell, about being able to tell the difference between these things. And this really is a happy picture of being able to, you know, don't you feel good in yourself? Like sometimes you get plagued by these enemies of your, of your spirit, you know, bad habits or whatever it is, and you don't know, you get blindsided. Oh, I didn't see that coming. Oh, I fell right in that trap again. How great is it when you can see it when it's still small, when it just pokes its head up into your consciousness, and you go, "Up," you know, you're bad. You know, that's bad. That's a bad Thought, that's a bad feeling right there. And take care of that right away. You know, that's what it's talking about. It's not talking about killing beautiful little children. Okay. Let's read something a little more uplifting. Uh, two Psalms to the right. There's Psalm 139, which is really gorgeous. This is how scripture does it, side by side. Uh, I I just find this uh very beautiful. Let's just read verses 17 and 18.
1: How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you.
0: Mm. And what Swedenborg says about this whole psalm, this whole psalm is just absolutely gorgeous. You have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down, my rising up. You understand my thought from afar off. Where can I go from your presence if I make my bed in hell? You are there and... And just beautiful, and how the Lord, uh, you know, made the person in, in the in the mother's womb, and all this, just a gorgeous psalm. The way Swedenborg reads this whole thing, is it's about the divine truth, which was born into this world, that manifestation of God that was called Jesus, talking about the divine love from which it originated. That's what the psalm is inward, most inwardly. All about and so this is talking about how that human part within God was being transformed into being a divine part when I awake I am still with you and these thoughts the number and so on more more numerous than the sand the sand is an image doesn't it say that the children of Israel will be you know greater than the you know more than the sand and and more than the stars in the heavens these are images The sand is sort of a very external kind of truth because it's made of little tiny pieces of stone. Uh, But what God has to tell us is way more than just that outward truth. It's something inward. Even in uh, these sorts of passages, uh, the very next verse starts talking about killing the wicked and blood and all, you know, it's never far away in the Psalms. But uh, but, uh, when you see what it means inwardly, Of the Lord coming into the world to release people from a kind of imprisonment. All these stories, even though they're in very different texts and they say very different things. Inwardly, they're really more about the same thing. Um, Fascinating. And let's look at Isaiah. So turn to the right. We'll Go to Isaiah chapter 58. And there's some, you know, as always, we're just scratching the surface in here. Um, let's read this beautiful passage. This is an example to me of a beautiful passage. Let's start at verse 3.
1: Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, the day of your fast you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Huh? Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high.
0: Okay, let's just pause there for a second. There's way more in there than we could cover, uh, or than I have the foggiest idea of what's going on. But basically, people are complaining because they're going through the motions of religion. They're fasting. That's one of the things you're supposed to do. They afflict their souls. Another thing you're supposed to do. And yet... God doesn't seem to care what's going on. And God says, oh, that's because your heart is still evil. You know, you're going through the motions, but your heart is still bad. That's what's going on. So you see what I mean? It says, you know, you're fasting for strife and debate. Like this is is not about love. It's not about harmony. You know, you're doing this to get back at people or us versus them and uh, to smite with the fist of wickedness to make your voice heard on high, you know, to sort of glorify yourself. You're doing it for the wrong reasons. Then Scripture says what in verse 5?
1: Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes?
0: Now, see, that head is a bulrush. Isn't that a great image? The, the poetry of Scripture is so astounding. And then when you realize, yes, and that bulrush is meaningful, and if you looked at other bulrush passages, you would learn something about it. Go on.
1: Would you call this a fast and, and an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness?
0: Oh, wow. Okay, so... So it's not about whether you're eating or you're not eating or you're precisely following the Mosaic law of all those ordinances and statutes and stuff. It's to stop being wicked.
1: To undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke.
0: And can you see now see, I think that that is literally true and that's a literally important thing to do part of the idea of the inner meaning is not that it does away with the outward meaning, but that it infills it like it shines a light into it. So it's not a bad thing to undo heavy burdens for people or to let the oppressed go free or to break every yoke in whatever sort of earthly sense you want to look at that. But just hold your mind open for the possibility that it also means a spiritual yoke, the same kind of thing we've been talking about in these other passages that the oppression is an oppression from hell. It says in Ephesians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, uh, but against powers you know, in, in, of wickedness in dark places and so on. Uh, go on.
1: Is it not to share your bread with the hungry?
0: And Swedenborg will say, well, the hungry, yes, do by all means share your bread, your physical bread with those who are physically hungry, but also know that hungry in scripture means those who long for love. They long to feel love from others. They long to have love in their own heart for others. And that's what they long for. So if you know some way to be loving, because you've got scripture and you understand about repentance and so on, share that with others so that they can be loving. That's dealing your bread to the hungry.
1: Uh, And that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out.
0: Yes. The, the, The poor have to do with, those who don't have enough uh, truth you know they're they're lacking in the truth poor having to do with not enough silver and you bring them into a play into a house bring them into somewhere where they'll learn more truth go on
1: when you see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh
0: yes and then... that can be literally naked and that can be people who don't have any any truth like they have no understanding or whatever
1: Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard.
0: Wow, that's a nice thought. Go Mm -hmm. on.
1: Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as the noonday.
0: Obviously not talking about physical darkness. not like the calendar is going to get rearranged for you or something. But it's very much talking about the spiritual state you'll be in.
1: The Lord will guide you continually. That
0: to me is the $24 million prize, like being guided by the Lord. That's the good one. Go on.
1: And satisfy your soul in drought mm. and strengthen your bones. Yes,
0: in the old King James, make fat your bones. Yes.
1: <laughs> you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail.
0: Yes, that's very much like the Garden of Eden the idea that there's all this truth, there's fruit bearing, and so on. Go on
1: those from among you shall build the old waste places. Mm. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in.
0: Yes, and Swedenborg says this has to do, when you when it's always talking about the things of old and that sort of thing, it's often talking about the ancient church, a time from long ago uh, that, People who come into this condition will actually be building a bridge backward to the ancient as well as forward. But be bringing things back, raising up these old uh, foundations of many generations, the repair of the breach. Hasn't there been a massive breach in the spiritual life of the human race? And don't we need to tie back to something more innocent, something better, uh, something wiser? And uh, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Uh, so these beautiful passages have an inner meaning. The really difficult passages have an inner meaning. The law has an inner meaning. The stories, the ripping yarns, everything in Scripture has an inner meaning. Okay. Now, uh, okay. now those of you who really know your Swedenborg well will say, Wait a minute. Didn't Swedenborg explicitly say that there are some books... You're talking about the ubiquity of the inner meaning. Didn't Swedenborg explicitly say there are some books in the Bible that have no inner meaning? Didn't he say that? Mm -hmm. Well, the truth is, yes, he did say that. At the end of his work, Secrets of Heaven or Cana Celestia... Number 10, 3, 2, 5. He says, some books are books of what he calls the Word and others are not. And he rhymes them off. Pray for me, friends. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, the four Gospels and Revelation. Those books have an inner meaning. Then two years later, Swedenborg first makes that statement in 1756. Two years later in 1758, in a work called New Jerusalem, or New Jerusalem of Seventy Doctrine, number 266, he repeats this statement again. And at the end of that list, he says, the rest have no inner meaning. I want to give you a list here for those of you who are getting the visuals. Here are the books that are not included in the Old Testament. It's Ruth, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Ten books in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, the Acts and the Epistles. There are numerous Epistles there. Pauline Epistles, the Catholic Epistles. uh, uh, So the Acts and Epistles. So this is verse for verse. 22% of the Old Testament, he says doesn't qualify, so 78% does. But in the New Testament, it rises to 47% is, you know, that's a lot. How can I say there's a ubiquity of the inner meaning when Swedenborg says, these have no inner meaning? And when Swedenborg copies that statement again from New Jerusalem, to, so he's even a little more emphatic. He says, the rest have no inner meaning. And then the third time he says it in White Horse 16, he says again, gives the same list. And then he says, the rest have no inner meaning. And then he says this. So Job is not on the list, right? Then he says, the book of Job is an ancient book in which there is indeed an inner meaning. Now, this is the next sentence after he says, there is no inner meaning. Then he says, in the book of Job, there is an inner meaning. There is indeed an inner meaning, but not in serie, I-N and the Latin word S-E-R-I-E. Not in serie, two words. So there's an inner meaning, but not in serie. So what what does in serie mean? Been a lot of debate about this. So and he gives two references When he says this, he says, the book of Job has an inner meaning. It doesn't. So you got to love Swedenborg. Uh, A a friend of mine likes to say, when you're reading Swedenborg, you got to ride loose in the saddle, you know, (laughs) because often he will say, like in heaven and hell, there's that wonderful place where he says, there is no such thing as spirit's memory leaking into human memories. Next sentence. When this does happen, it causes the phenomenon called deja vu. You know, it's, you know, so a little bit of salt, just use a little salt, you know. Uh, I think both things are true, but let's hear some more about what he means by this inner meaning. So he sends us to two references in Whitehorse when he says, Job has an inner meaning, but not in serie, literally in English, that would be not in series, not in series, what, what does that mean? Okay. So he points us to two passages. One is Secrets of Heaven 3540. And here's what he says. I, I'm departing, by the way, from my usual practice, good friends. There's so much that Swedenborg wrote. In Latin, it was three and a half million words, and none of those words is the word of the. So when you unpack it, or of or anything like that, so when you unpack it into English, it turns into well over five or six million words. Uh, If I were quoting Swedenborg, we'd never have any time for anything else. But I do want to quote, because I think this is important tonight, Uh, Secrets of Heaven 3540. He says, hide and skin is what he's talking about, symbolize superficial things, which earthly things are in comparison with spiritual and heavenly things. Then he says, so since it was customary in the ancient church. Hmm. This is the ancient church way back. It was customary in the ancient church to speak and write symbolically. That's the way people spoke and wrote back then. They they loved symbolism. Since it was customary in the ancient church to speak and write symbolically, hide and skin have the same symbolism in Job. A book that he has carefully said has no inner meaning. And here he's saying, oh, no, no. Skin has the same inner meaning in Job. And then he says, Job is a book of the ancient church. And he said, this can be seen from several places in Job, including the famous statement this will cause, dear reader, to sing, no doubt, I know that my Redeemer liveth. I
1: know that my That's right. <laughs>
0: I know my redeemer lives and in the end will rise above the dust. And afterward, all this will be wrapped in my skin and from my flesh. I will see God. Mm. Mm. Swedenborg explains the inner meaning of this book that has no inner meaning. He says being wrapped in skin stands for being wrapped in the earthly element we take with us after death as described above. And seeing God from one's flesh means seeing him from a sense of one's own autonomy brought to life. For this symbolism of flesh, see earlier, as I said, he goes on, Job's representational, symbolic manner of writing, which to me means there are deeper layers to Job, he says, uh, Job's Representational, symbolic manner of writing shows it to be a book of the ancient church, but it is not among the books called the Law and the Prophets because, drumroll, it does not have an inner meaning dealing exclusively with the Lord and his kingdom. Oh, you mean it does have an inner meaning, as we heard him say, but not one that deals exclusively with the Lord and his kingdom. So, okay, file that away in your mind. And he says, this is the only criterion for a true book of the word. So, okay, Job has an inner meaning, but when Swedenborg says it doesn't have an inner meaning, he means it doesn't have an inner meaning that deals exclusively with the Lord and his kingdom. And the plot thickens further, good friends. Listen to this. In Secrets of Heaven 3942, he, Swedenborg talks about this song of Solomon, the last of these books down there. Don't know if you've ever bothered to get your head into that book, but it's quite erotic and steamy. It's an exciting book. And Swedenborg says of it, he quotes from the Song of Solomon. And then he says, as regards the book in which these verses appear called the Song of Solomon, it does not belong among the books called Moses and the prophets because it does not have an inner meaning. But it is written in the ancient style and is full of things with spiritual meanings. Full!
1: <laughs>
0: Wait a minute. It doesn't have an inner meaning, but it's full of spiritual meanings. Hmm. See, my little ubiquity argument starting to look a little better now, isn't it? I said that there's a ubiquitous inner meaning in there, and Swedenborg helping me out right here. Because he said, even though he said it doesn't have an inner meaning, but it's written in the ancient style and is full of things with spiritual meanings that were gathered together from the books of the ancient church and also from many things in the ancient church that referred to heavenly and spiritual love and especially marriage love. The fact that it is a book of this nature is also evident from the consideration that unlike the books known as Moses and Prophets, the sense of the letter in it presents many things which are quite improper. But because the kind of things that have heavenly love and marriage love as their real meaning are massed together there, this book is therefore seen to have a mystical meaning. And everybody thinks it's about God and the church or something, you know, like everybody reads it that way. You know, it's not, it's not just a love story or something. So isn't that interesting? How can you have an inner meaning? The plot thickens. Swedenborg always does that. Plot thickens. So no inner meaning. And, and before he said, an intermingling dealing exclusively. Oh, well, is that what he's talking about? An intermingling dealing exclusively with the Lord and his kingdom. And finally, there's uh, there's one more passage I want to read you. Uh, that was 3942. Exactly 6,000 numbers later is 9942. And this is also in the same kind of topic. And uh, he says, uh, all the things that are contained in the first chapters of Genesis, are made-up history. You know, creation story, all all that stuff early on, that's made-up history. In the internal sense, or the inner meaning of these things, there are divine secrets about the new creation, about the regeneration of people of the heavenly church. That mode of writing... That mode of writing, having everything have an inner meaning, was the mode of writing amongst the most ancient times, not only among those who were part of the church, but also among people who were outside the church, for example, Arabs, Syrians, and Greeks, as is clear from the books written at those times, both the sacred ones and the secular. What is he saying? He's saying that ancient, ancient literature, I would say the Iliad, the Odyssey, the ancient myths, Hesiod's works and days, Ovid's metaphor, you know, all sorts of literature from that time was written in this symbolic, representational, correspondential way. All of it. The, the secular stuff was written that way. It's all written that way. So then he says... In imitation of that literature, the Song of Songs was written by Solomon. Similarly, which book is not a sacred book since it does not contain heavenly and divine things inwardly in a series? In serie. (laughs) Heavenly and divine things in a series. What's he talking about? As sacred books do. And then he says the book of Job is another book of the ancient church. Thank you for sharing. So, uh, okay, here's a little graphic of what I think is going on there. Here's another heresy. Is it the other way? It's the other way. My heresy's over here. Okay. In serie. From what we just read, a lot of people have interpreted in serie to mean in a chain horizontally, like one verse connects with the next verse. And one book or one chapter connects with the next chapter. And so you have an unbroken chain. And so people have referred to this by this somewhat uh, made up phrase. Swedenborg doesn't use the phrase continuous internal sense. But people have coined that in the church to try to understand what's going on. So maybe the epistles, you know, maybe the chronicles or whatever don't have uh, a continuous internal You know, maybe it's broken up. Like this part has an inner meaning. That part doesn't. This part has an inner meaning. That part doesn't. But that doesn't fit with that word full. Didn't I hear Swedenborg say full? Full of spiritual meanings. Full of spiritual meanings. That's what he said about Job. That's what he said about the Song of Solomon. Full of them. And yet he still calls that not having an inner meaning. Well, I think his bar on the inner meaning was pretty high. I think what he was looking for was something, I don't know if you can see this and those of you who get in the audio will try to describe it. There's a circle at the bottom that's in green that's called literal. So that's like the literal meaning. That's what you encounter on the outside of scripture. Then there's a layer within that Swedenborg describes that I've done in light blue here that he calls sometimes uh, the internal historical. And what he means by that is it's all about the religious and spiritual history of the human race over time. That's when he talks about the most ancient church and the ancient church and what happened in Christianity, you know, know, that that's inwardly a bunch of what we read tonight. I was interpreting that way in terms of that. That's the sweep of the religious internal history. It's not talking about the external did so-and-so kill so-and-so and and who was the king at that point or whatever. It's about what was going on inwardly Were people loving God Were they loving their neighbor or were they loving themselves? Were they in a sort of spiritual idolatry and so on? Then there's a third circle, which I've done in dark blue, spiritual, spiritual meaning, which Swedenborg says has to do with our rebirth, our regeneration. Uh, Then he talks about in that one passage there, didn't he? He said the heavenly and divine things. It doesn't have heavenly and divine things inwardly in serie. I don't think it's primarily a horizontal chain. I think he's talking about a vertical chain that goes all the way up to the divine. So the celestial meaning has to do with the Lord coming into the world. And this is a level of truth beyond anybody's comprehension. Uh, There are some books 78% 78% of the Old Testament, 53% of the New has this entire package in every verse, in every, in every word. I mean, I've never tried to play five-dimensional chess, but I imagine it's somewhat challenging. Uh, this is just amazing to think about the requirements. So he's not talking about a mere schmear, oh yeah, you're full of correspondences. Oh, that's child's play. Even Job can do that. You know, anybody can do that. Uh, Yes, the whole of scripture is full of that. Why can I assert so confidently that the whole, even though Swedenborg says these books have no inner meaning? Because in many, many other passages, and they far outweigh these passages, I don't think these passages are wrong. Depends what you mean by an inner meaning. But in many, many passages, he talks about the fact that everything. We just read it tonight. Sacred, secular, all the literature. That's how they rolled. They didn't say things. They didn't say normal things. Like uh, when you're establishing your government, you should probably have some of this and some of that. They said, well, there was a horse with wings and it came down and put its hoof on the top of a mountain and a spring of water came out. Well, that's symbolic. That's representational. Even Achilles, the Achilles heel, they dip him in the, in the you know, dip him in the water. Uh, but the, you have to hold on to one part. That's his Achilles heel. That's what's making him vulnerable. That is meaningful. That's about how something spiritual connects with something lower in ourselves. That's about our ego, our sense of self. That's where you're vulnerable. You know, all those stories, uh, Circe and the pigs and, the, you know, the whole deal, it's all written in symbolic representational language that's how they rolled that's uh, that they loved that swedenborg uses a phrase that you may have heard before in the old translations it was the science of sciences to them this symbolism was their favorite thing ever it's what they thought about day and night was what does an oak tree mean and what is a fish and what's the difference between a fish kind of truth and a bird kind of truth well, what's the difference between a water kind of truth and a blood kind of truth? You know, th- this is what they would, they would do all day. They were fascinated by this. And when they wrote stuff, they loved to write things like this. So when they were writing the first chapters of Genesis, th- they're not doing it according to earthly sense. You can see that very easily because light comes way before the sun and all those sorts of things. But uh, it makes good sense this way. The in Serie thing is... is Banging in there. It's doing great, you know. It's working on all these different levels. Uh, so the bar is very high for what he means by inner meaning. He means this entire structure in here with a chain going from this outermost earthly, physical, material stuff sheep and stones and all that sort of thing swords, uh, beards of lions, and, and it goes all the way in to God himself inside there. And that's all connected and it works on every level. You know, you could read it on each one of those levels and the whole thing is connected together. Whereas in something like the epistles, you know, there's tons of imagery all over the place, but it may not perfectly do the whole five-dimensional chess thing. Uh, Speaking of which, let's look at some places where Paul in particular actually tells us i am speaking to you in symbolic and representational language. Shall we do that? Let's go to the New Testament and let's go so you got John then you turn out into the Acts and then the temperature of the air changes and you get into Romans there and i want to go to um 1 <laughs> Corinthians chapter 2 And there are many, many other things I'd love to tell you about this. It's been a passion of mine for a while to study this and think about it. Uh, By the way, it's worth telling you, good friends, that numerous times, like let me go back to my graphic of these different things just for a second. Swedenborg explains the inner meaning of things that are in Chronicles, things that are in Ezra, a couple of places in Nehemiah, uh, I think it's 171 passages in Job. He explains the inner meaning of something that he says has no inner meaning. Okay, he explains the inner meaning of a number of passages in Song of Solomon. And he explains the inner meaning of things in the act, the day of Pentecost, when the tongues like flame come down, the flame means something, the tongue means something. You know, uh, he explains and why the rules were don't eat anything strangled or offered to idols or, you know, and... and uh Uh, And things in the epistles uh, not a ton but not never either. He explains the correspondential meaning in in, uh, one example is in one of the epistles of Peter where he talks about the elements at the end of time melting with fervent heat and he explains what that means it's not a literal you know it's not a little literal fireball or something it's about what happens in the human heart at that you know he's interpreting an epistle as having an inner layer, you know, he does that hundreds, of, hundreds of times. He explains it. So you have to take a big picture view here. And let's look at what Paul does here. So First Corinthians, chapter two. What does Paul say in two verse seven? There. But oh, let's s- read verse six. How- Maybe we should go with verse five. How about four? 4 4?
1: And my speech...
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know how much my reader loves it when I do
1: And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. Oh, not human wisdom. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Mm. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age. Mm nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing but but we speak the wisdom we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory
0: yes we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery is this a person who's saying my writings are flat as a pancake nothing to see here move along people He says, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom. That's what he said, right? Okay, that's just one passage. Let's look at some more. How about 1 Corinthians 15, where he's talking about life after death. Great, awesome passage. Look at verse 51 in there.
1: Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet.
0: She's going to sing again.
1: I'll resist. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised raised. (laughs) incorruptible, and we shall Shall be be changed. changed.
0: That's right. I tell you a mystery. Now, is this someone saying, I am telling you a very boring, prosaic thing right now? About the twinkling of an eye and a trumpet and all this, you know, come on. I mean... You know, he's spe- and there are tons of examples. It just you know, read the epistles; they're full of examples about putting on the sh- shield and the helmet and the sword and the sh- things on your feet. And all. you know, and they're all metaphorical things. It's talking about. It's not talking about a physical shield, and you know, they're they're full of things like that because that's, that's the way everybody rolled. rolled back then. That's the <laughs> way you did it. That's the that's what writing was. You know, uh, have a look at Ephesians chapter five. So. Turn to the right and you will go through Galatians and get to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. Oh, this is a fun one. Let's read this at a little bit of length. We're running late here, but let's go ahead. Let's start at verse 22, shall we?
1: Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord.
0: Now, you could be forgiven for thinking that this was about marriage or about couples. Couldn't you? I mean, you can understand why someone might take it that way. Go on.
1: For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. This
0: statement upset many. Yes, go on.
1: And he is the savior of the body. Mm. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word.
0: Is there anything strike you as metaphorical in here? Talking about the the Lord washing the church and sanctifying it. You know, okay, go on.
1: That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish.
0: Yeah, solid, solid symbolic language. Go on.
1: So husbands ought to love their own wives and their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Go on. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of His body, of His flesh and of His bones.
0: Really, His flesh and His His flesh and bones disappeared from the tomb, you know what, what is he talking about? Go on.
1: For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh.
0: Okay, so what do you do when Paul quotes Genesis? Genesis makes the list, Paul doesn't, but he's quoting it. Does that have an inner meaning, or does it not? Go on. And here we go. Drum roll, please.
1: This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Paul. This is a great mystery... Don't mistake me. I'm talking about Christ and the church. That's what I'm talking about. By the way, this is quite a major theme in Swedenborg's work on marriage. You know, he, he picks this right up. That's that's where marriage comes from. It's, it's, it's right out of this chapter right here. And so he even uses the M word. This is a great mystery. You know, I'm speaking about Christ and the church. You could be mistaken for thinking it was about the male-female thing that's so popular, but uh, no, he's, he's talking about something else. Okay, and let's look at 1 Thessalonians. So turn to the right, go through Philippians and Colossians, you'll find 1 Thessalonians. Uh, so Swedenborg said that some books are the word and some are not. So the word was his special term for that uh, serie thing uh, where you get that whole chain going up to the Lord. Uh, look at this in Paul and a very famous, amazing passage. Let's start at uh, verse 15. Of what? In 1 Thessalonians 4. 1
1: Thessalonians 4. Sorry.
0: That's no problem. I didn't tell you 15. anything about it.
1: <laughs> For this we say to you by the word of the
0: Lord. Oh, really? This we say to you by the word of the Lord, says Paul. That, by the word, so what, you know, okay, good.
1: That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep.
0: Does that mean literally sleeping and snoring? Of course not. Go on.
1: For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout.
0: Do you think it will literally be with a shout?
1: With the voice of an archangel. Do
0: you think it will literally be with a voice?
1: And with the trumpet of God.
0: There's another trumpet. The other trumpet said mystery. This one says the word of God. I'm saying to you. By the word of God. Okay, there's another trumpet.
1: And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words.
0: Comfort one another with these terrifying words. Yes, the... um, uh, When you read them in an inner way, they are comforting. When you understand what the air is, what the clouds are, the Lord, many passages in the four gospels, you know, and the book of Revelation talk about the Lord coming in the clouds. And he says, we say to you by the word of the Lord. Isn't that great? This is what is Paul's own testimony. And um, so, so. Because everything, when was this stuff written? It wasn't written last year. You know, when was Ruth and Chronicles and all that stuff written? You know, it was written back in the day. And the style of writing back in the day was that everything was symbolic and representational. That's how Swedenborg can say that the Song of Solomon is full of spiritual meanings. Full of spiritual meanings says the same thing of Job, explains 171 passages from Job. It tells you what the inner meaning is of those passages and says that the inner meaning is the same as it is in the other. You know, more sort of quote-unquote canonical or word-like books that he's talking about. Um, So uh, I think what he means by the word and what he means by inseria is that there are some all the books of the Bible, this is how I would summarize it. All the books of the Bible have an inner meaning. There's always an inner meaning right there. And some of the early warning signs are that things are not literal. You know, it's metaphorical or it couldn't be literally true or, or you know, like it's hard to understand. Or would it really be saying that if it was being literal? You know, the whole thing from beginning to end. I mean, First and Second Chronicles are not on his list and they copy a lot of stuff right out of First and Second Samuel, which is, you know, uh, you know. So I think there's, there's an inner meaning that goes through the whole thing. Then some of those books that Swedenborg lists have this spectacular, glorious form of heaven, full deal, the five-layered full deal that he calls an inner meaning in some of those passages, you know. When he says they don't have an inner meaning, he means they don't have that whole thing going full bore in every single statement, you know, and, and and that I would believe. Some of the things in the epistles are just Paul saying, I'm going to come visit you next year or greet so-and-so with a kiss. and uh, you, you know, their letters and, and stuff like that. So I can believe that, that not 100% of it is all artfully tied back. Swedenborg says that it's actually hard to understand things that are written in correspondences and when you're launching a new phase of religion you need to speak a little more clearly and that's what the epistles were doing, that's what Swedenborg was doing, they are trying to express it a little more clearly so people could understand it so in closing good friends within the beautiful sayings within the hard sayings within the beatitudes and the begats throughout the Bible There is an inner layer of meaning. And this meaning can really help us understand the true message of Scripture. Thank you for your kind attention. Let's close with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You are the word and you gave us that image, Lord, of your seamless inner garment, representing the inner meaning that is throughout the outer garment may be split into pieces, they may divide lots over it. But that inner garment remains whole. We thank you, Lord, for that deeper layer of scripture. We live in a time when our minds are so earthly that it's hard for many of us to even fathom there could possibly be a deeper layer of meaning, let alone layer upon layer upon layer, reaching all the way to your divine truth, transcending the minds of the highest and most receptive angels. We thank you, Lord, for the miracle of your word, and thank you for allowing us to glimpse a little bit of how it works. Our Father, who art in the heavens, Let's keep on repenting, friends, so we can understand this book better.